use their minds. Paul wants them to use their minds. Again, as I say, he, he doesn't want them to empty their minds. He doesn't want them to empty their hearts. He doesn't want them to empty any form of thinking, for the Bible never calls the Christian to do that. In fact, all throughout this passage, you'll see that what Paul is proclaiming to the Corinthians is that he wants them to use their minds. He wants them to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And he wants them to also analyze what they're doing. He calls them to reason uh, based on what they're doing. And he wants them to utilize what God has established to discern, to distinguish, to explain, to interpret, to practice. And all of that takes the mind to do so. It is the cults at large, be it those who are the pseudo or the false so-called Christian cults or the cults who would be of a secular nature who tell you to empty your mind, who do not give you an objective source to be able to understand why you are coming to the conclusions that you are coming to. But yet here, what Paul, if you very well remember, what he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand is that there is no room for cultism. You remember that conflict that we reference at every point that we look at the scriptures together, that there was no room for a cult of personality. There was no room for a cult to develop around those who were sound, let alone for cults to develop around those who are not sound. And so Paul is bringing forward to them that they must be about one another. They must practice the gifts toward one another. And they must be zealous in that, but they also must build one another up and they must use their minds in order to inform that process. He's not saying that their minds are the absolute source. He's saying that the renewed mind who finds its source in God then becomes that very instrument that God uses to help us understand what it is we do. As I've said, nothing in the scripture, and I'll even be more specific for you, nothing here in the epistle to the Corinthians called them to empty their minds. He never tells them to empty their minds. Instead, Paul here, as you see our context, and we'll look at it a little closer, Paul viewed the use of the mind as necessary for the believer to receive edification, so to be built up, and to edify or build up others. So you need to understand. You need your mind to do that. You don't need to just empty your mind or go with the flow. It's that you have to understand what it is you're doing and you have to understand for whom you're doing it. And then you have to understand how do I then receive what I am to receive? It is why I believe the scripture, the perfect wisdom of God comes to us as it does, as our objective standard to measure these things. And if you see, there is the highest form of intelligence in Scripture. And so you're called to, in fact, deal with that. You're called to agree with that. You're also called to study that. And you're called to come to your conclusions of even building one another up based on that. I believe that what sincerely troubled Paul as you get through this epistle and also the next one is that there was a certain mindlessness that was starting to happen. And so many believe that mindlessness is chaos. But you can find mindlessness and sophistication. You can find people who are mindless who do things that sound eloquent. They look polished. But what they're doing and speaking and thinking and trying to get you to understand leads to mindlessness. 
And by that I mean it doesn't help us to understand the mind of God and what God would have for us. And so that's what Paul was calling them to. You should always be called to the mind of God. That is a mindful Christianity. Not the mind of men, not the mind of those who claim to represent God, but them calling you to the mind of God. Because that's how we're built up. We're built up from the mind of God through his scripture, through the gifts that he provides to the church. And then you are thereby strengthened directly from God working through others. But Paul says all of this is measurable. He encourages them specifically with reference to the practice of the gifts. He encourages the Christians at Corinth to practice the gifts and those necessary actions related to fellowship. However, it's as I've said, within those practices, he called them to use their minds. He wanted them to use their minds. In verse 13, which spills over into our earlier section a little bit because of the transition from verse 12, Paul wanted them to desire more than just receiving the gifts. I won't ask you to show your hands, but I do recognize uh, that I could ask it this way. How many of you have at times been in an environment where people want you to know what your spiritual gifts are, but they're not telling you how to use them. They're not defining them for you, but they're saying, we want you to know what your spiritual gifts are. And so they provide a certain test. And that test is also uh, at many times in disagreement with the scripture that informs and uh, defines the gifts. But what Paul wanted for them is he wanted the gifts to relate to fellowship, but he wanted them to use their minds. He wanted them to desire more than the gifts. He wanted them to certainly receive the gifts and to desire the gifts. But more than anything, he wanted them to build up the church. I don't know how many of you have ever heard someone say. Who wants to build up the church? Or have that defined for you. Have someone say, here's what the church is. Here's who the actual head of the church is by practice and by what the scripture says about them. And here's how we want you to build up the church. And then we want you to test that what we're saying actually agrees with the means that God has provided to build up the church. And so Paul, he wanted them to desire the gifts. He wanted them to receive the gifts. But he also wanted them to build up the church and to desire that above all. Well, why? Why would he want that for them? Because this would inform their motives. It would inform their motives. It would cause sincerity in their practice of the gifts toward one another. It would cause sincerity. Because what's the point of practicing the gifts if you don't have love abiding in your heart? What's the point of doing the thing that perhaps God has truly given you to do in the way of the gifts, but you do it with a critical spirit? You do it with an angry spirit. You do it with head knowledge that's not informing the heart, but a head knowledge that simply wants to be seen as head knowledge. What's the use of those things? Or to the other side, what's the use of doing those things and saying love, 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 but there's no way to measure the love that you're using or claiming to have to test if that's what God desires? 
You see, Paul here is truly a man of distinctions. I think it's why we appreciate here so much of what he's taught. I know we appreciate it because he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, a writer of many of the New Testament letters. But Paul also took the time to distinguish what he means from what he doesn't mean, what's true from what's false. And thereby, he is truly a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship Christ for him. We don't worship him, but we certainly appreciate that he was faithful to Christ in that area. And so you'll see that here in this section and the sections that continue. He wants their motives to agree with God's decrees. He wants their motives to agree with God's character. He wanted there to be sincerity in the practice of the gifts. He didn't want them to simply practice the gifts or look like they're practicing the gifts. The modern so-called church does a great job pretending, great job acting. What Paul wanted is sincerity. He wanted authenticity. He wanted there to be a realness to what they were doing. Not simply so that they can be commended by man, but that in their own heart, they kept a clear conscience. There was love flowing through them outward to others, and it was in sincerity. You remember it said, if you look at the mystery, the mystery of godliness, sincerity, a clear conscience, a sincere faith. As we have established so far. Paul wanted them to practice specifically the gift of languages in their time. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. He gets right to it. He leaves no room for you to want the gift, as we talked about the last time we were together, to want that gift and not have someone interpret. And that someone preferably being yourself. He's saying, if you're going to practice that gift, I want you to pray that you can interpret And we talked about this last time that that gift is the most effective and we judged how effective something is based on what we read in Scripture to the value it has to build your fellow believer up, your fellow brother or sister in the faith up. And so if you look at that, he wanted them to practice the gift, but he did not want them to practice the gift apart from interpretation. I will double down on this. There is zero percent of the time where Paul wants the gift of languages to be practiced without an interpreter. Zero percent of the time. There is nowhere in Corinthians where Paul commends the practice of languages as a gift without someone interpreting what is said. And that doesn't mean you get to make up language or make up the gift and interpret in a way That would be decoded or you interpret in a way that has nothing to do with language. He's talking about formal language supernaturally given by the Holy Spirit to those who are believers and then being able to tell forth what's necessary and it being interpreted to be understood so that it can build up the hearers. To do so, to desire the gift apart from building up the church or to desire the gift apart from desiring to be an interpreter of the gift is to sow confusion. And God, as you will see in this passage, Paul will say it explicitly that God is not the author of confusion. Satan is. 
we don't want to desire what God has by pragmatic means that Satan would somehow enter in and redefine it. And so he wanted them to have this gift, but he also wanted them to pair it with the gift of interpretation. But so then he instructed them to speak in the language, but also he instructed them to ensure that there was one who interprets. Already, we have disqualified every modern definition of so-called tongue speaking that exists in the world before us today. Because so many do it, whether it be from selfish motive, so many are speaking a so-called language that has no foundational understanding or meaning at all, gibberish, fluttering the mouth, the eyeballs, so they go mindless. And so they're in this ecstasy. And then some, I mean, let's, you know, let's uh, let's speak about it all. Some would fight against the idea that the gift of languages are here today. But when they speak the mother tongue, they're speaking things that aren't fit for sound doctrine. Along with those who are speaking false tongues, I'd like for them to close their mouths as well. Paul's point here is that I'd rather you speak clearly and from what God has actually said. However you're going to accomplish that, do that. Because that's the most important thing. The most important thing is not to show people that you're able to speak in supernatural languages. The most important thing is to build up the individuals in the church. And guess what you're then doing? You're building up the collective church. In the realm of prophecy, and I touch on it because it's coming up, in the realm of prophecy, it does no good to have so-called fallible prophecy or prophecy filled with error. How does that build anyone up? There is no place in scripture where error is used to build people up in the truth. And let me be very clear, error in teaching or error in practice. There is no place in scripture where that is allowed or permissible. And so we thank God for what's written here in Corinthians because the Corinthians were guilty of practicing those things. And Paul was trying to set their course in the right way. He was trying to push them in the proper direction so that they can meet their Lord face to face. It's why in chapter 15, if you just peek over there with me, in chapter 15, he goes into the fact of Christ's resurrection. He begins to deal with why we're doing all this in the first place. It's to see him and to meet him and to see him as he is, the one who conquered death. It's to be with him in eternal life. Doing what we want to do or practicing error in the way that we think that that would lead to the truth does not lead to seeing Christ in eternal fellowship. It leads to seeing Christ in eternal judgment. So Paul raises the stakes. He wanted someone to interpret. He wanted there to be an interpreter of this because he wanted people to be built up. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. But look at this. My mind is unfruitful. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The point is, Paul did not want them to abandon their mind in the use of the gifts especially related to languages. He did not want to 
have them pray in a tongue or pray in a language. He wasn't establishing a basis for prayer language that's not discernible or understood between those who are speaking. He wasn't saying go in your private closet and and go ahead and flutter your tongue and your mouth and your eyeballs and pray to God and somehow he'll understand that's okay. No. In fact, if you look at his point, his main point comes at the end of the verse. He says in verse 14, for if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays. And he's talking about the real nature of language, the real nature of possessing the gift. He says, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So even if I have the gift and I'm only speaking to God, yes, my spirit is praying, but my mind is not engaged in that process because someone has to interpret what I'm saying. God understands, but I need to understand. I need to understand what I'm saying to God. In other words, what's the point of speaking to God if what he gave is for me to speak to you so I can build you up? He didn't want them to abandon their mind in the use of the gifts, especially with the languages. But he also did not want them to simply, in this case, practice the gift. Because I believe what's written here in verse 14, whoever the speaker is certainly has that gift. Whoever Paul is trying to correct in verse 14, they have the gift. They're not using it the right way. He wanted their minds to be engaged in the use of not only this gift, but all the gifts. He wanted them to pray. Paul didn't say stop praying. He wanted them to pray. But he did not want them to be selfish or self-centered as they prayed. He didn't want them to take something that was meant for the building up of God's people in the church and somehow try to simply communicate to God as though that would make them more spiritual. Therein, finding their righteousness in themselves and their own practice. That's not what he wanted. He did not want them to simply pray to God on their own. They should pray to God on their own. But listen to this. It's the how that matters. He didn't want them to simply pray to God on their own in a language they couldn't understand because it hadn't been interpreted. Remember how he started this passage. Let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. It also means not everyone who had the gift was able to interpret what they were saying. What use is it then to pray to God in a language that you don't understand on a natural level, yet you were endowed with it to speak it forward so that an interpreter could come and translate what's said. And yet you're speaking to God and you're speaking to him in such a way that you don't understand what you're saying, but you certainly feel good in your spirit. But it's not being interpreted. Paul saying, what's the point of that? What's the point? He didn't want them to simply pray to God on their own in this way and somehow believe that would profit those who were in fellowship with them, because that's the error. To speak to God in a language that is not your own, endowed with the gift as they were, and to do so and not have it interpreted. So it's not meant necessarily for God. You can pray to God in your mother tongue that you understand. 
You don't need a mediator. You have one in Christ Jesus. You don't need an interpreter or translator when you sit down before God and pray to him. Or in your manner of praying without ceasing. You see here where he's dethroning all those cult of religions who say that there's a mediator. Roman Catholicism. And so many others. They're not the only one. Who say that there is a mediator, a human mediator between you and God. No, there's one mediator between God and man. It is Christ Jesus. It is Christ Jesus. What then was the solution? He brings this up. What is the solution? Well, he words it that way. It says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays. So again, I believe this is the right practice of the gift in the sense that you're, you're using a language. But what happens is you're using it to the wrong one and it's not interpreted. So it ends up being the wrong use of the proper gift. What's the solution then? Verse 15, he says it. What is the outcome then? How do we solve this? How do we make sure that this doesn't happen? I will pray with the spirit. Listen to this. I will pray with the mind also. Mindful Christianity. I will sing with the spirit. I will sing spiritual songs. And I will sing with the mind also. Here, if you look at the second half, it's very important in the act of song. That the Bible in many places calls us to sing spiritual songs, causes us to lift our voice and sing to God. But it doesn't call us to sing mindlessly, to simply lift your hands and you have no idea what you're saying. You have no idea what those lyrics mean. And you're supposed to close your eyes because of mood setting, lift your hands because they told you to and just bellow out the first thing you're thinking. I want to understand what I'm saying. And Paul says, I want you to understand what you're saying in the realm of prayer and in the realm of singing out to God. Why don't you sing with your spirit, but also sing with your mind? And a lot of what's passing itself off as so-called worship music is doing neither. It has nothing to do with God's spirit, nor is your mind engaged in the process performance. Paul's trying to take them away from performance. If he wanted them to perform, they had no shortage of the arts in that era. They had no shortage of philosophers. This very society is built on the secular excellency that took place then. And I call it excellency because that's how it would be viewed today. But Paul says, I don't want you to practice that. We're distinct from that. So he gives them a solution. Why? Because Paul was a man of solutions. He offered solutions. More than that, he wanted God's solutions. What does God think about this? How would God solve this? I think we have to ask ourselves that question a little more. And if we're asking ourselves that question, praise God for that. But I think we have to say, what does God think about this? How does God view this? 
Well, in the realm of prayer, first, if you're going to pray, pray. Pray with your spirit. This goes into the construction of man. Uh, I'm sorry, the constitution of man as he's constructed. Body, soul, spirit. Pray with your spirit, but also pray with your mind. Do both. Know what you're saying. Know why you're saying it. Know what you're hoping for. Know what you're expecting. Understand what God wants you to pray for. Don't pray in a language that you're endowed with supernaturally that hasn't been interpreted and you don't understand. But pray. Pray in an informed way. If you're going to sing, sing. But sing with your spirit. God deserves your all. He certainly deserves that act of worship that singing is a part of. But sing with your mind also. Don't just sing because you're told to sing. Don't just sing because they're strumming instruments. Sing because what you're saying makes sense, not only spiritually toward God, but your mind is discerning what's said. That your mind is informing what is coming out of your mouth. As I've said, you see man's constitution here. You see it. But in that, too, you see man is holistic. I don't mean that man is compartmentalized. I mean, it is man working together in his constitution to bring God honor and glory and praise. This isn't devoid of emotions. It's not devoid of the soul. It's the soul is informed by the mind and the soul is informed by the spirit himself. And man's spirit is in agreement with God's spirit in the in the uh, act of this particular thing that Paul is referring to. He is wholly brought together. Man is wholly brought together in his constitution to honor God in body, soul and spirit. He's wholly brought together to honor God. That is important. I believe if you misinterpret this, there are consequences. Paul doesn't shy away from dealing with man's constitution. You know why? Because the philosophers didn't shy away from misinterpreting man's constitution. Today, the modern church doesn't shy away from it. You want to know why? If you have a, di a dichotomous view of man, you're always appealing to his emotions. You're always saying sing because the music is soft and everybody's looking at you. And if you don't sing, you're going to look strange. It's not sing because I'm, I'm thankful. I understand that the words are theological. The words come from scripture. I'm informing what is being said with my mind and therefore I can bellow out thanksgiving irrespective of who's watching me. My emotions may be up or they may be down. But I'm not controlled by that. The guitar, the trumpet, the violins don't make me or move me. I'm moved by the God whom, I, whom I'm worshiping. And if that's not the case, and if you have this view of man that only goes to the level of his emotions, body and soul, then you'll appeal to people. Lift your hands. You instruct them mindlessly. Lift your hands. Close your eyes. Open your eyes. Get on the floor. Don't get on the floor. Paul doesn't want this for them because that was already happening in the arts around them in the Greco-Roman Empire. Paul said, I want you to do this with your mind. When you sing, think about what it is you're saying. 
Think about who you're saying it to. When you pray, think about who you're asking and petitioning certain things for. Think about the decrees, the covenants that inform your prayers. Think about the prayers before you. Think about who God is and what he will accomplish. He's bolstering worship. He's not relegating it to the emotions. You've been there. You know how empty that is. And I'm informing you that it has everything to do with God appealing to you as he has made you. It's why he speaks about man's spirit. It's why here Paul doesn't really appeal to emotions. He tells you to do it, but he tells you if you do it the right way, you're going to emotionally be settled in him and you'll be stable in him. Well, why? What's the test of that? I'm building you up. And you're building me up. The test of it is that as a Christian, you're being strengthened. And the test of that, that it is moving in me, is that I'm being strengthened. And great joy is my disposition. I'm not saying tilting your head and being glad about things or smiling all the time. But you have great joy. You have a liberated, free conscience. You know why you're here. You know why you're worshiping God. You don't need an emotional pick-me-up or fix. Your emotions are driven by what God has accomplished. Paul wanted them to be settled. I believe it's why he follows this up with the instructions in verse 20 and beyond for the church. Then he gets into the resurrection. And then guess what? By the time you end this, they forget everything that he said. So now he has to get back into it and remind them. And say you're settling. You see it. So even in the praise we offer to God, it has to be done, as I say, holistically. That mean that means all the parts of us working together. The essence of who we are It is to be done with the spirit and mind functioning together, not apart from one another. The body is assumed in this, that you are taking part of this in physical form bodily form he's not saying enter into a dreamlike state he's already he's already attacked that kind of thinking otherwise if you bless in the spirit only verse 16 how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted that means everybody in the church doesn't possess the gift say the amen aha that's the goal It's for us to say amen at your giving of thanks. So he does not know what you are saying. The goal is to say the amen. The goal is for us to agree with what's being said because we've tested what's being said. In the spirit does not mean gibberish or it does not mean that one is speaking incoherent. Doesn't mean that someone's saying something and it's confusing to one person because it's meant to be and it's clear to one person because it's meant to be clear to whoever I'm speaking to. It's that there's clarity because of the God who gave it. It assumes the new birth. Rather, in the spirit means you are speaking intimately and personally to God, but not to men. Therefore, this is the reason Paul tells them it does no good to their fellow believers to simply do what they will in private toward God without regard for others in fellowship, especially related to the gifts. This also does not mean that there is a private prayer language. Instead, 
if you look at this carefully, it is to privately pray to God in your language without interpreting the known language. When you ought to be praying to God in the common language, the common language, so that others can understand and say, Amen, let it be so. That is true. If they do not possess the gift of languages or interpretation. The goal of this gift is not to hide things from people. It's to make it all plain. It's to make it clear. The action in verse 17. For you are giving thanks well enough. You're doing that. And thank you for doing that. Thank you for giving thanks to God. But look at what he says. But the other person is not edified. You're giving thanks to God, but the other person is not edified. I think that's the whole problem of much of so-called modern Christianity. So-called. That, yeah, they're thanking God, I guess. But no one's being built up. They're just saying, thank you, God, for doing what you did for me. And Paul is saying, no, build one another up. Desire the spiritual gifts. But, verse 12, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And so you see it here. You see it here. He didn't want them to miss that. He wanted them to be praying to God in the common language. So others can understand and say amen if they do not possess the gift of languages or interpretation. He wanted the action in verse 17, he wanted it to result in thanksgiving. However, the thanksgiving should be collective in this way. It doesn't result in building up your fellow brother or sister in Christ. What's the point? What's the point of giving thanks in this way, in a prayer before God, if it's not being interpreted in a language that everyone can understand? Again, he says, therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. He's dealing with misusing the languages in the act of prayer. He did not want to see a practice in this way. Where one was simply showing off with the gift. Or he was simply speaking and others could not understand what he was saying because there were no interpreters. It does no use for you. If I preach in a language, you don't understand. If I'm preaching in a language and you are not skilled in that language. And I am saying things from the Bible, you're going to stare at me and perhaps nod on some level. But you don't really understand what I'm saying. What's the point of that? If teaching you is supposed to build you up. So I have to master the common language so that you can understand what's being said and you can be built up. But Paul also says you have to master yourself related to the scripture. You have to do this with the motive so that people are built up. What then Paul does desire as he modeled an example to them, he desired to edify or build up the church. Not to simply possess the gift without benefiting those whom the gift are practiced. 
Look at this. Verse 18. I thank God. I speak in tongues or languages more than you all. He's not saying the problem lies with me or that I'm jealous or that I don't have the gift of languages. Paul is saying I have the gift in a way in which I can speak multiple languages more than you all. But he says that's not the goal for me. The goal is to build you up. So if those languages don't have a place to build you up, I need to speak clearly in a way where you are built up. I don't need to show you that I have this gift. I need to show you that I want to build you up. And if there's no one to interpret, the gift doesn't have a place among you. He wanted it to be mindful. Look at what he says very carefully in verse 19. However, in the church, in the church, that's where the gift ought to be practiced. In the church. Are you saying there are no tongues today? Absolutely, because I'm saying I want to see it done this way. And if it's not done this way, it has ceased. If you do it this way, then I'll be convinced. But you don't get to make it up. You don't get to do it outside of how Paul instructed and then say, that's the gift of languages. And then you don't get to endlessly and hypothetically hope for the gift, never demonstrate the gift is in practice and somehow think my hoping for the gift is what's going to build me up. No, what will build me up is whatever gifts are out here. I want to build up the church. So, Lord, give me those gifts. And when you give me those gifts, now I'm going to practice those the right way. Paul doesn't say in the absence of the gifts, I hope you old future generations make it up. He says, no. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. I actually possess the gift. I'm not desiring the gift. He says, however... In the church, when I'm in the church, I desire to speak five words with my what? My mind. So that I may instruct others also. That's the goal. Rather than 10,000 words in a language, in a tongue. He wanted it to be mindful, not mindless. He wanted God's people to hear and understand. Not to be whipped into an emotional frenzy or to lack awareness and understanding. He wanted he, he did not want them to simply practice things because everybody was doing it. He didn't want them to gain what they were doing based on some emotional movement. He wanted them to be mindful of their practice in the church. The stakes were higher for them to do the right things that God has decreed in the church. What you don't see in any of the New Testament writing is hurry up and do something with urgency, whether it's right or wrong. You don't see this popular notion of fake it till you make it. You don't see that in Scripture. You see a very slow and patient hand of God working through the ages in the things that he's actually given for his church. Patiently raising up people from one generation to the next. Think of your own salvation. 
Think of how you had to grow in it. Think of where you are now and how you build people up around you and how you're being strengthened in your walk with Christ, I hope. And how even in that you are now coming to a place where I need to I need to use my gifts to edify believers and build them up. You look back on that process and temporally it took some time. It took time. It took the patient work of God being patient with us, with me, with you. It wasn't just, all right, we're here. Let's go. We're ready to do this. You don't see a rush with Paul. In fact, what you see in Paul's writing, it can be summed up in this. Slow down. Slow down and study, think, reason. Practice, but try to practice in holiness, faithfully. Try to be in agreement with what God has established. Don't rush through this. We're not on our clock. We're on God's. We're on his eternal timeline. Yes, there's urgency, but there must also be decency, order, truth in our urgency. You don't see anything here pragmatic. You don't see a God who's running out of resources. You see a God who's saying, let's slow down, Corinthians. Let's really think about what it is we're doing so that we can be in agreement with God. They were already rushing. That's why they were in schism, frustrated with one another, angry toward one another, angry toward God. Where am I getting that from? Well, you made Christ one of one of your faction leaders means you don't think much of the actual Christ who exists. He wanted them to learn and grow. Paul wanted this for the church. God wants it for his church. He wanted them to learn and grow, to be built up in what I call coherent instruction. Instruction you can understand. It was clear. And so Paul said he would rather speak five words with his mind. So that he could instruct them and they could understand. Rather than speak 10,000 words in a language that was not interpreted to them. Decency and order. Clarity, not confusion. Not chaos. He wasn't aiming for elitism. He said, I want you all who are in Christ to understand. Next time when we're together, we'll see he'll define the purpose, the actual purpose of the gift of languages, both in their history throughout the Old Testament, but also as they make their way through the life of the church up to that time. Let's pray.